Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. We're pleased to have you join us again for the program. My neighbour mows his lawn every Saturday morning. My friend volunteers at City Mission every week. I go to church every Sunday. So which one of us is a Christian and which one of us is just being religious? There's a difference between being religious and being a Christian. The Colossian church were having trouble with being religious and were addressed by the Apostle Paul. Tonight, Dr. Corbett, again in the New Testament book of Colossians, explores what it is to be connected to God and avoid being just religious. Let's join him now. That you would not only change our minds, but change our hearts and help us, Lord God, to see the truth of your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're going to continue looking at Colossians, which is a, an amazing book. It's that theme of, of, of what it is to be connected to Christ. And this is where, in a moment, we're going to see the difference between being merely religious and being Christian. One of the first things that struck me when I became a Christian was just prior to that, somebody actually said there was a difference between being religious and being a Christian. And I'd never considered that. I'd never even heard anyone say that. And in a moment, we're going to see Paul, the, the apostle who's writing this letter, he makes this point. And we're going to see the difference between what it is to be connected to Christ. And we call that Christianity, Christ in. That's where the, kind of the term Christian comes from. Christ is in you. And when Christ is in you, you know it. Someone, is, someone asked a pastor, pastor, how do I know if I'm really born again how do i know if i'm really a christian and the pastor's response was have you ever been struck by lightning no matter what their answer was the question is saying if you if you've been struck by lightning you'll know it <laughs> if if your if your question to me is i'm not sure then you haven't have you been converted now it's not as dramatic as being struck by lightning sometimes that new life that Christ has within us just becomes, as it says in was it Psalm 112, a, a new dawn. It's a, it's a, it's a dawning. It's, it's like the light just gets brighter. As we keep walking and we're going in a new direction, the light becomes brighter. <laughs> and some of us, we can't pinpoint a moment where the lightning struck us, but for some of us, we, we look back and we go, the scenery's different now. It's, this isn't how I used to see the world. This isn't how I used to think. This isn't how I used to feel. This isn't the way I prioritised my life. My life is different now. And Paul is going to say that there are people that have tried to live in a way that's all kind of up here for them. They've kind of tried to be clever to make themselves spiritual, religious or godly. And Paul's going to have a lot to say about that. And he sums up really this whole epistle, which is a letter to the Colossian church, by saying, if, if Christ is in you and you're in Christ, it makes all the difference. All the difference. So we're going to pick this up. Colossians chapter 2 and... We're going to look from uh, verse 13. And I think this is important because he, he says in, in verse 13, And you who were dead 
I mean, just that thought there. We, we, we can't rush past this thought. You, before you come to Christ, you are spiritually dead. You're dead spiritually. And I, I know that there are some people who kind of t- preach and teach a Christianity that sounds like, you know, um, come to Christ. So just get up from where you're at. Come to Christ. Um, along the way, uh, take off the old clothes that you're wearing of bad habits and sin and, and bad attitude and leave those clothes behind. Come to Christ. Let him put new clothes on you and continue the journey. The problem is you can't get up out of that chair, that spiritual chair you're in in life. You can't get up out of that spiritual bed you're in in life before you've come to Christ because it says you were, what's the condition? Dead very hard for a dead person to do well anything may that be the most profound thought you've had today <laughs> and, and you see before you come to Christ the, the, the Bible describes your condition as dead and in a moment we, we're going to hopefully see that makes, that makes my involvement in my conversion and my involvement in Christianity kind of like it's all been done for me and if that's what you start to think, I'm going to probably do the Toyota jump and go, you're starting to get it. Because that is exactly what Paul is about to describe. So we continue on in verse 13, and you who are dead in your trespasses, which is an interesting word, depending on your translation, it'll either say sins. I think the New Living Translation has sins. I think. Um, uh, other translations have transgressions. This one has trespasses. It paints a, a very clear picture. Um, you know, trespasses prosecuted. Used to love seeing that that uh, sign um, on the the the, uh, the the nunnery. You know, sisters of mercy and charity. Trespasses prosecuted. The full extent of the law. You know, it's like. <laughs> Trespass. It, to, to trespass is to go into places you shouldn't go. And when we're not with Christ, when we're not walking with Christ, that's our life. <laughs> we trespass into things that hurt us and injure us, and that's what sin does to us. Sin is not our friend. Sin is our enemy. And in The Lord of the Rings, you remember that ugly, ugly creature called Gollum. And he worshipped the ring. And he called the ring, what? That's not how he said it. <laughs> That's right. He called the ring his precious, precious. And he worshipped this ring. But what was the ring doing to him? It was, and, and, and Tolkien is, is saying the sum of all the wrong power in the world is yours by sin. And this Roman Catholic writer Tolkien is, you know, if you worship this, this is what it will do to you. It will distort you. It will make you ugly. It will make you like the living dead, which is what Gollum in Lord of the Rings was like. It will deceive you. It will lie to you. It will, it will distort you. And that's what sin does. Even though, in the immediate sense, it's quite pleasurable. And that's what it says in Hebrews 11, that Moses enjoyed or sorry, Moses forsook the pleasure of sin. He forsook the pleasure of sin. So sin is pleasurable in the same way that the ring was pleasurable to Gollum. 
in the early stages. But look what it did to him. So here's the lesson. If you sin, you'll end up looking like Gollum. That's, that's pretty much the conclusion we can make there. So, we're dead because we trespass. We're spiritually dead and spiritual deadness is in the sense that we are cut off from our life source and that life source is God. We couldn't make ourselves a Christian even if we tried. It requires something outside of us to come into us. And this is what the apostle is going to say. So we read on. And it says, and he introduces this concept, the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive. Who? Us. Together with him. God has done it. If you are a Christian, if you have been saved, if God has called you and drawn you out of death and put life into you, there's something, something that should be within you that goes, thank you. Thank you. You've opened my eyes. I see things differently. I feel different. I hear different. When others just get totally distracted, I stay on track because there's something in me that keeps me drawing to you. Thank you, God. That's what happened. That's what's happened. God has made us alive, it says. Now, here's what I think would be helpful to understand. If you're dead and now you're alive, that's called resurrection. Resurrection. This is... Your conversion to Christ is your first resurrection. It's your first resurrection. The Bible says that ultimately there's coming another resurrection when we're going to get a new body. And there are some days when this body is just not worth having. And there's something in my spirit (laughs) that says... We kind of hurry this whole new resurrection thing along a bit. You know, when I was involved in that motorcycle accident where I was hit by a Nissan patrol, that's why I, anyway, I've got, if I get a twitch, it's for remembering that Nissan patrol. I was, throwing, I was hit from behind and I was thrown through the air six metres and my, I was wearing a helmet. My helmet cracked open and then it hit my shoulder and it shattered my shoulder in two places. And today, if you take a close look, you'll notice this is about an inch or two lower than this shoulder. And there are some days this arm aches and it hurts and it all... And I could go on, but I'm a bloke, so I don't whinge. So, (laughs) (laughs) physical resurrection, I can't wait. I can't wait. And I know that there are people who only think in terms of this life, this world, this time. And for them, their life is about hair colour, tummy tucks, silicon implants and goodness knows where. And because this is, this is the only body they've got and this is their total worldview. But, you know, the Bible describes ageing as a gift. <laughs> it says that when, when the elderly walk into the room, those who are younger should rise. There's this, there's, the Bible actually commends age in a way that society doesn't. And ultimately, it's kind of because this life isn't all life is about. You're not just born to live, make the best of it, and then die, and that's the end of it. As our Hindu jewellery salesman was trying to tell us (laughs) in uh, uh, wherever we were, Agra, in northern India about three weeks ago, he was saying, you know, if you've been good enough, you don't have to come back. But if you haven't been good enough, you'll have to go and be reborn. It's called reincarnation. 
And he said, I'm sick of being reborn and reborn and reborn. The fact that he said that tells me that he knows in his heart he's not good enough. Hinduism offers no solution for sin. Now, I hope this becomes a big deal for you because we're going to read on that Paul thinks this is a really big deal. He goes on, God made alive together with him, that word together, we'll look at that in a moment because this is, um, there's an aspect of church that we really need to get because, it, because if you want the fullness of the revelation of Christ, you can only get it when you're plugged in, grounded in, planted in a local church. Um, we read that as part of Paul's prayer in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 2, that, that, that your hearts may be encouraged, knit together in love. Why? So that then you'll reach the full assurance of understanding of the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So how can we come to the fullness of the richness of the mystery of Christ? By being a part of something that's called together, the church together. So being in church is really, really important. Because it's in the community of church that God reveals things to us that he doesn't reveal when we're just on our own. So it says he's made us alive together. Powerful word. And having forgiven us most of our trespasses. Is that what it says? Having forgiven us all our trespasses. And what we're going to see in a moment is Paul is going to say there's two ways you can approach God. You can approach God in the hope that you're good enough. And there'll always be this nagging thought, am I? See, there are some people that say that if you do this religious duty, God will be pleased with you. For Jehovah's Witnesses, it's a matter of knocking on doors on a Saturday morning or whenever. And if you knock on enough doors, God will then be pleased with you. So here's the question. How many doors do you have to knock on for God to be pleased with you? 10, 20, 30? What if it's one more than you've knocked on? What if, what if that's not the criteria at all? And we're going to see here, Paul clearly makes the point that it is most certainly not the criteria. So we read verse 14. This is an amazing statement. By cancelling the record of debt... By cancelling the record of debt. What debt? See, when we sin, the Bible describes it as a debt. A debt to a holy God. We are borrowing his deity. We are saying, we will make the rules. We will determine what's right and wrong. We will determine who rules our life. Those are the prerogatives of God alone. And when we sin, we are taking something that we say, God, I want what you are. Bang. And we become indebted to God. That's what sin does. And you can never repay it. You can never repay it. Why? Because you're not God. As someone said to me recently, um, you know, there was a plaque that said, uh, there, there is one God and you ain't him. And when we sin, we are claiming to be God. And we are robbing God of who he is and that makes us indebted to him and we can never repay it. But look what this God has done. I mean, how would you treat people who continually spent their lives robbing you? You'd want justice. But look what this God has done. Infinite love, infinite mercy. He's cancelled our debt. And not just some of it. Not just yesterday's sins. He's cancelled our sins and trespasses. Verse 14. This is what he's done. 
So we were dead in trespasses. We were in the uncircumcision of our flesh. God has made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, I know most of us probably get this up here, but let it sink into our heart. When he died on the cross, he was paying a price. You see, we can't repay that debt to God because we're not God. We can't give anything of Godness to him, but Jesus can. Why? Because he is God. That's why, as Augustine said, the ultimate price for sin required the ultimate person in the universe. That must have been God himself. That's why Jesus Christ could not have been a created being. He must have been the eternal God, paying the infinite debt of sin. Some people think, but how could a loving God send me to hell for eternity when I've just sinned for five minutes on earth? Well, firstly, I think you're overestimating your goodness. Secondly, you don't get it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's not a matter of time. It's a matter of, of justice. If you take anything from God, it is impossible for you to repay it. You cannot because there is nothing of deity in you to repay it. That's why infinite punishment for infinite sin, which is any sin. But do you get it? He's forgiven us all, all our sins. God has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. We can't cancel the debt. We can't repay the debt. Thank God that he has done it. This is what Paul wants us to know. The debt has been fully paid. God has chosen to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. By doing this, God has made us innocent. God has made us innocent. So now if we were all to die and go from this life instantly into the next, stand before the judgment, and there's enough medical practitioners who have marvelled at the people who have these NDEs, these near-death experiences. And what are they, what's the universal testimony of people who, whose bodily functions cease? They, they, they suddenly are drawn down a tunnel before a great light. Isn't that interesting? Kind of matches up a lot with what Scripture says will happen upon death. And so there they are. There, there we would be, standing before God. Well, I was a pretty good bloke. I died in church. Surely that's got to count for something. But no, it doesn't count for anything. So what is it that Paul wants us to know here? We've done nothing. God has done it all. God's the initiator. God has made us alive. God has paid the debt. He's cancelled the debt and he's declared us innocent. Someone's put it this way. The new life that God gives us is totally from him. Our conversion, which means living according to that new life, is up to us. We adjust our lives to live according to him and his ways. So God has made us innocent. That's what it says in that verse there. Now, this is what many of us don't know and need to know. We, we read on verse 15, and this is where we're going to see that all spiritual opposition has been defeated. And some of us need to get a revelation of this. We need to really get this. Verse 15. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And many of the songs we sang this morning speak of Christ rising from the dead and triumphing. And this is, this is the truth of Scripture, that the ultimate enemy, sin, 
has brought the ultimate consequence, death. And it's also brought about the ultimate victory by Christ. Christ has died and risen again from the dead. So now there's not a demon on the planet and um, there's, there's, a, uh, there's a myth among Christians. And, and I dealt with this in India and it, and it brought initial confusion to them. But then as they thought about it, it brought great release. And here's the thought. Some people teach that the devil rules hell and God rules heaven. Matthew 25 says, Hell has been prepared for the devil. So that means the devil has never been to hell. Who rules hell? God. In fact, that's what makes hell, hell. Because it's the place where God, it says in Matthew 25... Hell has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It was never prepared for people. It's not the heart of God to send people to hell. When somebody tells God, get lost, I'll be my own God, they'll get the consequence that the very first person who said that, which was who? Satan. Lucifer. That's what he said. I don't want you telling me what to do. I'm going to determine what I do. I'm going to be my own God. And God says, then you'll have nothing of me. Hell was prepared. And all those that follow in those steps will get the same. And it's our job as believers to plead with people, don't choose that way of living. Don't choose that God. Choose the real God. And here's the thing. Um, I mentioned before that... um, We've got a a ride on mower, which I think is a license to um, pay mower repair bills. And uh, uh, one day it ran out of fuel and Ebony was mowing and she went and got the fuel and she's, you know, furiously trying to fill it up in this tiny little thing in the engine and she was trying to put it in where the oil goes. (laughs) You know, but there, there are people that live their lives like that. They are putting the wrong stuff into their lives, putting the wrong fuel, not living life the way we were created or designed to live. And so when we surrender to the one true God, we are living the way we're created to live. And there are some Christians who live their life in total fear that the devil can just knock them off, the devil can hit them, bash them, throw them about, abuse them, do whatever he wants to them. And I don't think they get Colossians 2.15. Colossians 2.15 makes it pretty clear. These guys are defeated. They've been triumphed over. They are no longer, they are no longer able to intimidate Christians. So we come down to verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see, what are all these things? This is what Paul is going to call, in a moment, um, uh, where does he refer to it? Man-made religion. Self-made, verse 23. Self-made religion. So these things are what we call religion. Man's efforts to appease God. Man's efforts to be spiritual. Man's efforts to look godly and righteous and deal with the problem of moral corruption. That's called religion. And the idea that you can light a candle and absolve your sin. 
The idea that you can sprinkle water over a baby and regenerate that baby. The idea that if you just wave the, the right incense, you'll purify a whole bunch of people. That is rubbish. And This is good preaching, Andrew. This is amening all over the place and hallelujah and glory to God. And this, it, but it is. And Paul calls it self-made religion. And he lists some of these things that people do in an effort to look religious. He writes to Timothy and he says, some people have a form of godliness, but they've got no power. They don't really know God. They don't really have the Holy Spirit in them. And so here he says, what is it we got? We've got um, food and drink and festivals and new moons and Sabbaths. What do we call that? Religion. That's what we call it. We call it religion. And religion is man's efforts to spiritually manipulate. If we do this, we can manipulate God. If we light these candles, then they are automatic prayers that go up before God. What? Where'd you get that from? You didn't get it from Scripture. Goodness me. So what else is religion? Well, we see here religion is special diets. Some people don't eat pork or um, red meat, claiming that they are pleasing God by doing that. Some Christians don't drink in public, um, <laughs> claiming that because of that, they are more pleasing to God. Some people, and, and I met a bunch of them a, a couple of months ago, and they scared me. And... and and they hold to Sunday as the fullness of the Old Testament Sabbath. And they're talking about not even turning on a light switch in their house. They're scary. They scare me. When I was in India, I received an email from a pastor in London who was a part of a Seventh-day Adventist breakaway group. And, and he read my book on Revelation and he said, you've, you've spun me out. He says, if that's true, which really, it's not about Revelation, it's about how to read the Bible. That's what it's really about. He says, if that's true, then everything I've been taught is wrong. And I don't know what to do with the Sabbath now. And I probably get more heated emails than anything else. And I write on some pretty controversial stuff. And the most heated emails I get is over the Sabbath. Unbelievable. Today, who would have thought? But it is such a big deal for so many people. I like what John Stott says about the Sabbath. He says, we as Christians should make Sunday our Sabbath. And we should make it a day of rest. And he says, rest can involve recreation. Rest can involve emergency services. So if you're a nurse or a doctor or someone responsible for generating electricity, all the all the or ambulance drivers, the emergency things, they, they still need to function. Didn't Jesus say if your, your, your oxen falls down a hole, you'll go and rescue it? Because that's an emergency. Get that thing out of there. S, services. You know, who's not filled up their car with petrol on a Sunday or, or turn a light switch on, which means somebody's got to work down at the power station? We've all done that. And John Stott says those things are essential to the functioning of society. And then T for transport. Transport should still function on the Sabbath. But he says much beyond that is probably too much. 
And, and I used to be involved in retail. I was involved in, in retail for over 10 years. And I know that when they were pushing Sunday trading and eventually got brought in and Sunday trading came in, you know what we found? We were trading seven days a week and we were doing six days worth of trade still. Rather pointless. So as Christians, if you don't have to on a Sunday, probably better that you don't. Now, is that a rule? Is that a law? No. I want you to get the spirit of the thing. <laughs> Rest. But Paul is saying there are some people that made it a law. You did this? Aha! You're not pleasing to God. And he says, that's bunk. It's not, it's not the rules and the, the, the man-made things that you keep, the diets you eat. He says in the next verse... In verse 17, what does he call all of these things? What's the word? Shadows. These things were shadows. What does that mean? Well, okay, the Sabbath. Uh, of the Ten Commandments, you've got this thing called, you know, don't work on the seventh day, which is, you know, technically Saturday. Don't work on that day. What's it saying? It was a shadow. What's a shadow? It, it's, it's not the reality. What was the reality? The reality is Christ. Because what's it saying? Christ will do all of the work and he will bring us into his rest so that when we come to Christ, we rest from working to please God and we just rest in the one who has already pleased God. And that's what Hebrews chapter 4 says, that Christ has done all the work. He is our rest. There is a Sabbath available for us as Christians and it's Christ. That Sabbath is Christ. These things... Are a Sabbath. Now, if we read on as we bring this to a close, we're going to read on of some what I would call super spirituality. So, uh, in verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So, Christ is the reality. Why all the animal sacrifices? It wasn't those things that saved anybody, those things were mere shadows. They pointed to the real sacrifice, who was Jesus. Let no one disqualify you. So if you feel completely inadequate to be a Christian, and I hope that's all of us, then you're in a good zone. If you've bought into this clean your act up and get your act together, then you can become a Christian. That's not the message of the Bible. That's the message of men, not God. And Paul goes on. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. That's kind of being harsh to your body. Worship of angels, going on in detail about visions. Oh, man. You know, some people drive me, you know, I call them space cadets. They're having visions of this and visions of that. And I had a vision of this. And, you know, something happens. They go, yes, God showed me that was going to happen. Well, why didn't you tell anybody before it happened? Well, it wasn't clear to me then. It's like, oh man, space cadet, fair dinkum. So, you know, and Paul says these things people do to puff themselves up. Spiritually puff themselves up. It says puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And verse 19, here's the real cause of that. See, if you haven't got Christ, you've got to put on a show. You've got to come to church and wear an extra mask. I mean, we all kind of want to look nice to people and we kind of eventually let people into our mask behind our mask but here Paul's saying there's a there's people who wear such a thick mask they want you to think they're really godly they're really spiritual they really know their bibles and I've got this little clipping in one of my bibles of a, a bible quiz competition that happened in America where it, they came down to the playoff the state playoff for the bible quiz champion I think it was of Tennessee or something 
And the guy who lost in the final was so ticked. I mean, right there, that should have been a clue that he may have had it up here. But he was furious. He lost the state Bible quiz champion competition for Tennessee. So that night he got a pistol, went around and shot the winner in the head. You know, now there's something that says, I don't think you deserved to be the Bible quiz winner of Tennessee. In fact, I don't think you deserve to be runner-up because there is something clearly you did not get when you were reading this book. So let's not be fooled by people who have all the super spiritual bravado. They, they talk like they're, you know, they're on a, um, uh, they don't have dial-up with God. They don't use um, you know, whatever it is, uh, SMS to God. <laughs> they're on broadband, constant connection, you know, and... And while in one sense we all strive to have that kind of communion and fellowship with God, there are people who put it on. And this is what Paul says, they puff themselves up. And I'm not interested in being like that. I want to know the reality of a real relationship with God, the reality of a real connection with God. And this is what Paul says is the real cause. They do, it says, they are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So super spirituality. This guy, Gene Edward Veith, said this. Christian spirituality is grounded not in having visions, not in hearing voices inside our heads, not in cultivating mystical experiences, but in receiving the word of God. That is by reading and applying God's word. How do I know if you're really spiritual? You read this with a soft and tender heart and you apply it to your life. That's how we can tell if you're really spiritual. And so Paul says people will put on this bravado, they'll kind of try to look spiritual if they really don't know Jesus. So how can we know Jesus? How can we have true spiritual health? How can we be healthy spiritually? How can we have strength spiritually? By clinging closer to Jesus. How do we do that? Through the word. Paul, in the opening chapter, talks about the gospel being the word of truth. He talks about it in uh, verse 7. as something we must learn. He talks about the word of God necessary to be taught. We must get the word of God into us. We must allow it to teach us so that we can know the true Jesus. So when we read on, we read verse 20, if Christ, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world or spiritual principles of the world, why is it as if you are still alive in the world do you submit to regulations like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. Here's the closing verse. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is another way of saying they have no way of solving the sin problem. So here's my concluding thoughts. If Christ has done it all, and we do not spell Christianity D-O, we spell Christianity D-O-N-E, Christ has done it all. That makes Christianity easy. That makes Christianity easy. But I was listening to a preacher the other day who said, but for exactly the same reasons, that also makes Christianity very hard. Why? Because there is something in it that says, I don't want something for nothing. I want to do something for it. 
And that is so ingrained into us that that makes living Christianity very hard because we don't get grace. And some people replace grace for laziness, apathy, lethargy. And they don't get that while it is God who regenerates us, it is up to us to be converted. They don't get it. And they don't get that that conversion comes from the grace of God as well. So how do we do this? We've got to stay connected to Jesus. How? I've already mentioned it. Through devotion to his word. Do you read his word every day? Do you read his word every day? On my phone, I've got the Bible. And uh, the other day, I was standing in a checkout line. And it was a long line. And I thought, I reckon I've got about a minute here. So I just get out my phone, break open the Bible, and just read where I'm up to in my Bible. Do you read your Bible? It's amazing how many... I, I'm, I, I probably don't want you to show me by a show of hands because I, I don't want to be discouraged. <laughs> so how can I, as the pastor of your souls, encourage you without scolding you? Read your Bible every day. My wife, I think, is a picture of disciplined Bible reading. When... when um, she made a commitment to read the entire New Testament before Tyrone was born that year. And uh, uh, we're in the delivery suite and it was a 10-hour uh, labour. And that gave Kim the chance to read the last few books of the New Testament. And, we're, and, and by that stage, she's in you know, kind of a bit of pain and the pethidine and the whatever's kicking in. And she's seeing stuff already without any help because of these drugs. And then I'm reading Revelation to her because she wanted it read. And we're reading about flying scorpions with human faces. And, you know, animals with seven heads and dripping, you know, it's like, you know, she was trippy enough with all the, the gases she was sucking on. So, but Kim, you know, and, and Kim's been up sort of midnight, one o'clock, two o'clock, just getting everything ready for the hard taskmaster that Jeff is for the next day, um, getting things painted, prepped. And she'll come to bed and she says, I will not put my head on the pillow until I've read my allowance of scripture for the day. And she'll do it. And we've both made that a habit. But I'm bragging on my wife because she's, she's a good girl in that regard. Just continues the discipline of reading God's word. That's how you stay connected to Christ. This is not just a book. This is not just a, a worship of a history lesson. The, 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 Moses called this your life. In here you'll find your spiritual life. The natural man just says his words on a page. Jesus says, these words that I've given you, they are spirit and they are life. So we stay connected to Christ through the word of God. We also note those words together. Together. It's, it's repeated all through the, this opening couple of chapters. Together. He's made us alive together. He's, made, he's brought us together. That, you know, Colossians 2.2, 2, that you, you would be knit together. And so how can we stay connected to Christ? It seems that Paul was saying... Together is really important. How do we keep that connection to Christ? We must be in meaningful fellowship with the body of Christ. Has your experience of living connected to God been stifled by religious thinking? Podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Colossians Part 7, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at P.O. Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.